I've wanted to have Phil Vernon on the show ever since I started this podcast. And now that we're all in lockdown amid a health crisis, well, it's as good a time as any. Phil was CEO of Australian Ethical Investments for 10 years before he stood down last year. Australian Ethical has been hugely influential in the responsible investment industry through leading the discussion on what it means to invest ethically while also simply getting down to business and offering a superannuation option that makes you money for your retirement while also ensuring the environment is in good shape for when you finish working. Plus, they've built a mighty business along the way. They're no charity. They're a for-profit business and under Phil's control, they saw the company's market cap boom from $20 million to almost $300 million today. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and whether financial markets will ever be the same again. I could have chatted to Phil for hours and we did end up speaking for far longer than was caught in the recording. Phil's the real deal. In the lead up to the GFC in 07, he was deep in the world of finance, working in securitization. And so he saw all too clearly the greed and excess that built into a debt bubble that was always going to blow up. Phil saw the light and moved over to Australian Ethical in 2009, where he helped build and shape an ethical approach to finance in Australia. He weathered the GFC, but with excellent timing, he stood down last year and so avoided being a CEO amid a global health pandemic. That's not to say he's not been busy. And we discussed his work with Beyond Zero Emissions, as well as his work with startups. And Phil will always be a strong advocate for building an ethical path for finance, battling climate change and empowering people to invest in line with their values. Let's get into it. The show notes are all on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you're keen to help spread the word, please leave a review on iTunes. It'll only take you 30 seconds and it really does help spread the word. All right, nothing left to do, but dive in to my conversation with Phil Vernon. Here we go. Phil, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure, John. And now, Phil, how are you handling your time in isolation? Yeah, I'm quite enjoying it, to be honest. I mean, um, you know, it's quite nice to have the family around. I'm not directly impacted, uh, as many people are. You know, there's a lot of people hurting out there. Yeah, have you had any any personal revelations about, you know, the future of work or the next stages for sustainability and investing? Future of work, I think, is an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, one of the sort of outcomes of this, you know, quite obviously is everybody's got a lot more used to how they're operating across video. I mean, it's been interesting just observing that through some of the organisations that I'm involved in, you know, in the first few weeks, everybody really just adjusted to it. Although in the last few weeks, I'm, I'm starting to sense, you know, the anxiety levels are increasing. And yeah, it's sort of been interesting having a look at why. Did an interesting exercise the other day with a group where, you know, we got into sort of more honest conversations across Zoom. And um, it was interesting, you know, that initially I think people were using video fairly transactionally, got used to it, all the fun stuff, all the kids. I think that's been a a fantastic thing is that it's just... um, you know, in organisations, you're always trying to encourage people to bring their authentic self to work. And this has sort of accelerated, you know, people are on Zoom with kids climbing up their backs and things like that. I think that's been fantastic. But what's been missing, I think, is that, you know, when you're in a normal office environment, 
uh, when stresses occur, there's always those private conversations that are going on, you know, to, to resolve issues and all of that sort of thing. And I think initially organisations weren't necessarily adapting to the new environment to do that. And so for staff, you know, where they're not getting that sort of attention, uh, that's where the, where the things start to rise. And particularly when you've got people having situations at home that may not have been apparent before and, and, and those sorts of stresses. Um, I think, you know, to get on top of that uh, and recognising that this situation isn't, isn't going to go away anytime soon, even if, you know, start rolling back to work, it's not going to go back as a new normal. The organisations that really respond well to this are the ones that are going to be um, ahead of others, I think, and just keep that cultural cohesion uh, working. I mean, Phil, what then has surprised you about the way um, individuals, companies, governments have reacted to this whole crisis? I think uh, probably pleasantly surprised at how well people adjusted. You know, we had a few incidents like Bondi Beach thing and all that sort of thing, but by and large, I think everyone adjusted really, really well and really, really quickly. I think there's been a lot of goodwill around. And certainly, and maybe this shouldn't have been a surprise, I think the government has, or governments at all levels, I think they've done an outstanding job. I think they sort of started out, uh, you know, there was a few things with, you know, the, the inconsistent messages and all that sort of thing. But once they flipped over, there was a bit of a, a point where they just really realised what was going on. Uh, I think they've done an outstanding job. That just shows in the results that they've achieved. Well, that's it. And, and we hear a lot, we're starting to hear murmurings of, of this push towards a green recovery. Do you maintain that faith that the government will, will switch and see this as an opportunity to, um, to push forward with the sustainability uh, issues and, and opportunities with technology and innovation and all those sorts of things as we, we try to push the stimulus to get the economy back on board? Well, we can hope so, can't we? <laughs> you know, there, there is a risk, and I think we've seen that in some of the rhetoric that's, that's coming out of them now. There is a risk that they don't. I think, uh, you know, there's been the references back to gas-led recovery and, uh, and all of that sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of people, uh, organisation that I'm involved with, Beyond Zero Emissions is one of them, but there was a conference yesterday actually on exactly this topic. What do we need to do to actually encourage the recovery to go in the right direction and it's got to i mean you know it just can't go back to where it was you know all of the issues are there anyway climate change needs to be resolved but probably more so you know that's i mean the opportunity is is just huge we're actually you know coming out of a situation now where going into a period where we've got incredibly low interest rates for a long period of time probably you know decades you know, there's a lot of lessons to be taken out of this and a lot of analogies to be drawn with climate change. And a lot of those lessons are all about resilience. And, you know, we really don't want to make the same mistake again. So there's a real opportunity to make it go in the right direction. Economically, you can justify it because of the borrowing. The, the nature of a renewable economy is such that there's a lot of capital cost up front, but little operating cost on an ongoing basis. So it's a, it's a real opportunity to invest in that. It's an opportunity to move away from what is, a, you know, effectively a volatile type economy. If, you, if you're talking about relying on fossil fuels that are subject to all sorts of external volatile shocks, another lesson coming out of this is to be more sort of self-sustaining as a country and building a, an economy based on renewables and 
sustainable economy just makes you far more self-sufficient. You know, you use the word resilience and we hear that so often now. Is, is that really, is being self-sufficient at the core of resilience for you? What does that word mean? Uh, resilience has a lot of things, actually. I mean, there's a lot that's come out of this experience uh, where resilience is just a, a bit of a common theme. You know, it's a resilience as a country. You know, we've had supply chain shocks, um, external sort of trading partner shocks, things like that. Also, resilience from a health perspective, you know, just building up the ability to actually respond to, you know, a health situation like this, not just the health system itself, but then, you know, the way that the economy responded to it. Resilience has a, a lot of different measures. That's it. That's it. And just to catch people up to speed of what you're most well known for, which is your role as CEO of Australian Ethical, you stood down at the end of last year. Um, I was going to say you have impeccable timing to have uh, avoided <laughs> the corona crisis. But of course, you took over the reins amid the GFC. You certainly had your own baptism of fire and you're no stranger to a crisis. So can you tell us a little bit about those early days? Yeah, I mean, I came out of the GFC. I sort of came into responsible investment because um, you know, in my previous career, my business was focused on securitization and securitization was you know, at the epicenter or the, even the cause of the GFC. They were a pretty intense couple of years. Sort of came out of that, you know, seeing how markets probably shouldn't operate. So formed a whole bunch of views about that. Uh, also, there was a personal connection. Family of mine were involved in the environmental movement. There was a fairly seminal situation that uh, you're no doubt aware of with the guns situation back in the mid-80s, which the organisation that I was with was a major shareholder. And so, you know, working for the company that was a major shareholder in this company that my family were advocating against gave me a sense also of this was effectively, you know, a company that we're investing in that was, you know, quite an abhorrent sort of corporate operator. Um, and so and that was just for people that don't know about guns, that was a, um, a logging company, right? Down in Tasmania. That's right. It was a logging company that was uh, doing uh, logging a lot of the old growth forests. Not only that, it was also engaging in a lot of corporate bullying and uh, yeah, quite a bar corporate behavior as well. And so those two things combined just formed my views about, you know, the way the capital markets uh, should operate. Um, so I really wanted to get into responsible investing. It was sort of the early days of ethical investing and responsible investing in Australia. And um, yeah, the role came up at Australian Ethical and uh, like that was incredibly attractive to me because Australian Ethical was one of the pioneers in Australia and, you know, give all credit to, you know, the visionaries behind the, you know, the organisation that started it back in the mid 80s uh, was quite uh, ahead of its time. But it was, you know, quite different to what it is now. It was uh, quite fledgling. The industry was quite fledgling at the time. But, you know, at its core, it had this, you know, real authenticity and this core purpose. And there was that, uh, you know, attraction, I guess, if, you know, there was this organisation with a core purpose. But maybe if uh, it operated commercially, combined the commercial operation, you know, with the core purpose... There was a big market of people that uh, would really be attracted to it. And you can really see that starting probably about 10 years ago. It was a fantastic journey. You would have worked your way up to find yourself 
working in securitization, that would have been a, you know, I imagine studying finance and, and, and pretty deep career trajectory. But as you said, your family were involved in environmental issues. Was there always a balance there, you know, from your sort of uni days and working your way up in that career? Did you always have a perspective on environmentalism or did they sort of crash together when you, you saw the worst of it in, in 07 and 08? To be honest, I grew up in Western Sydney, so I probably had a, a I probably came at things more from a, I always had an acute sense of social justice. I probably didn't grow up as an environmentalist, so I really came to it through that family lens. And to be honest, when they first raised, you know, when they first, um, the issue first started coming up, I probably actually saw the company's point of view initially and was quite defensive. It actually took me a while to actually go, no, this is actually wrong. And even then, I, I probably did actually come at it from a social justice point of view, and it was more about the behaviour of the company. The company was actually taking legal action against my family, my brother-in-law. So that was probably more a, a social justice thing as much as anything else. Yeah, and, and I think that we've seen that balance between taking the company approach and then the the pure environmentalist approach, and, and you've sort of managed to thread that balance throughout your career. I mean, that's the what Australian Ethical does so well. Do you feel that that, I mean, in the 10 years that you were at the reins there, sustainable investing really has come of age. Do you think that that balance is is more in harmony these days? I think it's much better than what it was. I think um, it's got a long way to go. Australian Ethical, what we did well there was to, I think uh, that's a fantastic word that you use there is harmony, because we really, um, you know, we had a particular engagement with our customers, but we also worked really hard at building that up internally as well from a values perspective. And that really shines through. When your people are engaged, they're purpose-driven, that really comes through with your customers as well. And, you know, I mean, I, I think it was a fantastic example of, you know, stakeholder capitalism, if you like, at its core, you know, ethical investing is one of our core values was uh, empathy. And that's effectively what ethical investing is all about and impact investing. I mean, it's about caring about the impact that you're having and that applies to the impact on the world, but it also applies to the impact on your customers. You know, if you really believe that and you live it, it really shines through and works. And I think the organisation was, I like to think that it was a real proof point of that it can actually work, you know, that uh, staff engagement was high, customer engagement was high, you know, the investment performance was uh, top quartile, uh, you know, the share performance, all, all the metrics just, you know, were were there. And so for any of the naysayers that sort of said that, you know, you can't operate this way and perform at the same time, so I think it was a, a great example of, of being a proof point that that's actually wrong. Well, that's right. And you, and you use the word engagement. And I think that that is something that super funds have avoided for so long. You know, they're happy to have the, the golden river flow from people's pay slips every week and just send them a letter once a year and, and tell them about the performance. But you guys were engaged day in, day out. You were advocating for certain issues and talking to your clients about that. And I think as sustainable investing is, is creeping into more and more super funds as an issue, then they are maybe being forced to, but maybe they're just, it's just the nature of our digital communications nowadays that everybody expects to have this access. Um, but I think amid the corona crisis, we're seeing again the voices of these funds 
raised even more. And now that's obviously partly because customers are now being given early access to their super, which is something that is sort of contentious and also um, perhaps unexpected. So how do you think that that engagement uh, is really shifting in, in those relationships? Uh, I think it's improving. Yeah, generally, I think the superannuation industry still has quite a way to go in a number of respects. Um, I've probably talked about that in a couple of different ways. I mean, just picking up on the point that you talked about there on the early release uh, scheme. Uh, It's a contentious one and an interesting one. I'll possibly offer a viewpoint on that that might be a little bit contrarian on on that particular issue for a start you know i think it was a little bit difficult for the government to just pull that out of the woodwork but if you stand back and actually look at the principle of it there is an alternative view to sort of say that in you know a situation that we're going through at the moment that you know a release from your super to tide society over through this you know, is potentially warranted. And I sort of come at that from this angle, and, uh, and that is probably a few things that sort of support that. One is the stewardship argument of superannuation that we, we quite often use in responsible investment land. And that is superannuation and the investment markets in general are so big, you know, they have such an influence on the future of our planet and our society that they need to care, going back to to that, they need to care about, you know, the impact that they have on the world and society around them. From that sort of angle, when society is going through, you know, this massive shock that it is at the moment, there's a bit of an argument there that it has a part to play in contributing to everybody getting through it. We've seen it with the banks with their forgiving of loan repayments and many, many other examples throughout society and the economy at the moment. That's one argument, I guess, to support that as well. I mean, you know, superannuation is all about providing in your retirement when you no longer have an income. But in a sense, there's nothing magical about retirement other than the fact that you just happen to not have an income. So if people are going through a chronic dislocation, where they you know they don't have an income at the moment if this could help them through then that's as important as providing income from when they're in retirement and i guess the other thing is you know with our superannuation system at the moment uh, the way that our superannuation system structured it's an accumulation and choice based system so it puts a lot of the risk back onto members anyway so once again i'm i'm sort of saying i'm very sympathetic to the fact that it was sort of a real change out of out of the blue but, you know, hardship is there in our superannuation system. Do you think it sets a, a dangerous precedent, though, that maybe, you know, super can be pillaged in the future at every every whiff of crisis? And, and not to downplay how major this crisis is, but isn't that what budget surplus is for, that, that we should be spending taxpayers' funds on welfare? Job Seeker and Job Keeper did come through after the announcement of the super so maybe that was sort of a, a recognition that they would need more support but that sort of dangerous precedent that it might um, open the gates to being accessed more and more in the future yeah there potentially is that precedent you probably do need to wrap judgments around it so yeah there's arguments both sides i wasn't necessarily advocating for it but i do probably think that you know coming out of this uh, it, it does justify a proper discussion what is the purpose of super, which was, has been on the table for many, many years? And you know, how do we think about the sole purpose test, which is sort of related to that, to have that discussion in principle and then design it in the future 
so uh, anticipating uh, situations like this because I think one of the lessons out of this is yeah let's let's anticipate things like this. It was unprecedented, it wasn't unexpected. So you know let's learn from that. That's interesting, and I think that that is something that you're obviously very close to and have been for a while in terms of you know the purpose of super and the arguments about fiduciary duty of a fund manager on whether you know you can take an ethical approach and there were arguments that they're, they're fading nowadays but there were arguments that that's not the role of a super fund that it's just a matter of making profit for people's retirement but obviously you know climate risk is very real and so i think it would be a breach of a fiduciary duty not to take that into consideration but how did you feel that sort of debate flowed um, for the last couple of decades yeah I'm, it's still flowing it's, it's definitely a long a long way from being resolved I, I i guess you know going back to that whole stewardship argument particularly for something like climate the argument is you know the capital base of super has a lot of influence and so it should be able to take a normative view is the way that i sort of describe it a normative view toward how it manages its portfolio. So from a divestment point of view, there's no reason why you know you can't take a take a view that it is better for society and the planet not to direct capital toward this thing that's going to wreck the planet in the long term. Provided that you can be satisfied that you can still manage your portfolio with proper investment principles, have a well-diversified portfolio. The confusion always comes about that people misinterpret it to think that they've actually got to get the maximum return possible, not just, you know, a decent return. Or, you know, there's this fear of missing out that if I could have got a better return with that investment that I didn't have, then somehow I'm breaching my fiduciary duty and that's that's not the case. There's every argument to say that you should be able to do that uh you should be able to make that judgment and i believe that it's legally doable it's a lot easier probably in a situation where you're an ethical fund in a, a choice ethical fund so you're satisfied that your entire member base is is 100 aligned with you but in other funds it does raise the question whether you need to bring your members along with you that side of things but I still believe it's doable. If it's not doable or if it's unclear whether it's doable, I think that really should be clarified because, you know, it's difficult to reconcile where you've got whatever the surveys are, sort of 70% of people out there in the consumer land want business and government to take action on climate change. But they're either disengaged with their super or they're, you know, five steps removed from being able to actually influence what their super fund's doing. But when the public want this to happen, that there's all these things in the way from actually stopping it happening, you know, somehow we've got to close that loop. I think a really good middle ground to all of this, because divestment of an entire industry is potentially a blunt instrument. So I think a really, a really good step, a conversation that we could have is why shouldn't superannuation funds commit to a net zero emissions target? And so that avoids, you know, the blunt instrument of just getting out tomorrow. It's absolutely aligned with at least 50% of the, of the market. ESG funds uh, are committed to engaging with the companies that they invest in to have a net zero emissions target or at least a policy philosophy consistent with the Paris Agreement, why wouldn't it be 
acceptable for the superannuation funds to actually adopt that target themselves. We effectively start from where we are, but then we all go on a pathway between now and say 2050 and ensure that their portfolio is consistent with uh, a net zero emissions target. And that will put downward pressure, further downward pressure on the companies. It's sort of the reverse slow boiling frog, if you like, makes it more, much more palatable. So I, I think that that is a conversation that we should be having, but there is a little bit of resistance to that as well, which I find sort of inconsistent when we want companies to actually commit to a net zero emissions target that we we can't do it at the super fund level. A lot to um, to dig into there. Thank you for all that. I think it's really interesting. Does that make the super fund an advocate type role? I mean, when you, if a fund was advocating for a net zero target for by 2050, for instance, would that mean that they wouldn't invest in any companies that hadn't made that commitment? Is that kind of how it operates? It starts that conversation. So it starts that conversation. It, it, it forces, and there's a lot to work out. Um, there's absolutely a lot to work out. You know, all the mechanisms aren't there from day one. But, you know, the starting point is, well, how do I satisfy myself that my portfolio is on, is on that pathway? The starting point is to actually uh, get the information that they need from their investee companies they're in. And it just starts that conversation. Yeah, and you talked about resistance, which is surprising because we have, I mean, for starters, we've got two of the, the world's largest mining companies, BHP and Rio Tinto. They've both committed to net zero by 2050. We've got Shell and BP, which um, have done the same. And, and in some ways, that's an even bigger claim, a, a bigger commitment because their uh, scope three emissions are, are a lot bigger because they, you know, their main product is such a huge emitter and such a big problem. So where is that resistance coming from? Uh, it's a philosophical resistance. That's not the role of investors. You know, the role of investors is to maximise returns. And then does the universal owner kind of model help with that in as much as, you know, a lot of these big funds own so many assets, shares in companies all over the world that they are exposed to the economy and society broadly and their long-term investors, yep. all of which mean that... Um, it matters what the climate's like in 2050 because that's going to affect their investments. So really, philosophy shouldn't, I mean, I guess philosophy is broad, but you know, ethics shouldn't matter that it really is simply a risk issue. Yeah, it is a risk issue, but there is actually two different conversations to be had and these two conversations often get confused. One is a conversation about, and this applies to companies as well, that I am here to manage the impact of the climate on my portfolio and, and minimise the risk uh, of that uh, or manage the risk of that. The other conversation is that I am here to care about the impact of my portfolio on the climate. And they're actually two different conversations, but they often get confused. And so companies, funds, people will often sort of say, you know, I'm, I'm managing cl climate risk or we will solve, you know, business is taking action on climate risk uh, or business is taking action on the climate but because we're doing this first thing. But that actually won't solve the problem. We need to care about the impact that we're having on the climate. And so in a corporate sense, the easiest way to think about the, the distinction between the two is in scope three. If you manage, you know, scope one and scope two without managing scope three, you, you're sort of managing the risk on your portfolio. You're not necessarily managing the impact that your company is having on the climate. And that's actually the conversation that we 
I think that's the next part of the conversation that we need to have. And that is where the capital markets, the, you know, the corporate sector and the investment sector start to take a more normative uh, approach to the way that they think about their role. Can you explain that term normative for us? If there's uh, an inequity or something wrong, you take action to normalise it. You know, that is an action that's normally done by government or historically done by government, you know, to step in and, you know, take normative action to correct uh, either, a, you know, a, a social inequity or, or a market failure or something like that. So taking responsibility? Taking responsibility. If the capital markets, investment markets and the corporate market uh, have this greater role uh, in society just by virtue of their size, and climate's the perfect way to describe it, um, the perfect way to illustrate it, that the capital markets have such an enormous influence on the future of this planet, arguably more influence than uh, sovereign countries. Then unless they take a normative role, that is, unless they care as a collective about solving the problem, and not just react and operate their businesses to maximise profits and maximise returns. That's a disconnect in the way that we're actually set up in the world today. Yeah, good stuff, Phil. Thank you for all of those insights. I think super is a really interesting space and, and leading the way in some ways because of their, their really long-term perspective, looking after people's retirement nest egg. But you're out of that game now, so I won't, I won't make you um, dwell on it anymore. I'd love to hear about what's going on in the future for you and, and what are you working on at the moment? I'm doing a few things, which is good. I've taken on a, uh, a few boards uh, recently. So I uh, just took on one recently as uh, or a board consulting role for a um, organisation called Futurity Investment Group. They're a financial services group, friendly society focused on uh, education uh, products, which is um, something that's always been dear to my heart. Just think education is very important. Uh, it's a purpose-driven organisation. Um, also setting up a foundation to advocate for education and so forth. Uh, education is just such an important thing to for the fabric of society. I grew up in the Whitlam era in the west of Sydney. Probably wouldn't have made it to university uh, if it wasn't for the reforms that Gough Whitlam introduced. So inclusive education is just something that I've got a passion about. And, uh, you know, I think we've created a bit of, bit of a situation in Australia where you know education can be a little bit out of reach of a lot of people so so that's really good and uh, last year I joined the board of a organization the environmental defenders office more in the climate space environmental space they're an amazing organization of public interest lawyers that are taking on some amazing cases uh, at the moment uh, so doing a lot of great stuff and then, yeah, the Beyond Zero Emissions that I, I talked about, doing this project at the moment called the One Million Jobs Project, which is all about that post-COVID recovery, making sure that we've got a green or a sustainable post-COVID recovery, which is good. And then also just doing a little bit of private investing in renewable space, which is really exciting as well. Yeah, good stuff. I mean, you've always 
been an advocate and it sounds like you're doing lots of advocacy is that something you are you want to stick more deeply with on, on that side of things you know rather than going back into management of a company yeah look i'm really enjoying it i'm really enjoying seeing right across the system yeah there's the advocacy side the policy side that's always sort of turned me on right down at the other end as well uh getting involved in a lot of the startups is really good and then also keeping my hand in you know sort of regulated financial institution land as well i have a real interest in sort of connecting the dots and you know if we getting back to this whole concept of normative the financial system as a whole if we sort of see you know what needs to be done and we see ideas out there that sort of need to be nurtured uh, how do we actually nurture them through the system uh, and make sure that you now they don't get sort of chewed up and spat out uh, along the way, which is sort of what, what happens, you know, that for, for people that are starting up with good ideas and, and dealing with a few of them at the moment, you know, it's a little bit of a jungle that they've got to wade, wade through as they sort of go through, you know, seed funding to Series A and then, you know, up to sort of trying to get uh, scaling up to being publicly listed. So there's a few sort of forming thoughts I've got around all of that as to how the, how the whole process could be made to work better. It's interesting. And I think joining the dots is really important. That's something that I try to do with this podcast. And, you know, as you did sort of 15 years ago, when, when you shifted from sort of pure finance to working with Australian ethical, you know, you made a shift in your career. And I often get questions from people and a lot of my listeners, you know, are working in finance and they just feel a disconnect. They feel a bit of an itch and they want to sort of make a difference. What advice would you give to them? Yeah, it's an incredible sector, a responsible investment sector. And, you know, I've talked before about the way that it's come along in the last 10 years. There's an incredible bunch of people in the sector and it's just genuinely align your personal values with what you do. It makes such a difference. I mean, every business goes through its peaks and its troughs and it's, you know, it's tough times. But, you know, I just we saw it, you know, with Australian Ethical, we went through quite a few changes over the time but there was always that core purpose and i think if you've always got that core purpose to sort of get you up in the morning it just makes such a world of difference that's it and you know the stories i've heard about australian ethical is that there were times that uh culture was important but at the same time you knew you needed rigorous finance minds and so you might have brought people in that weren't the cookie cutter birkenstock wearing i guess sort of <laughs> image or persona of what people think might be a, a finance person working at Australian Ethical, but, but having different perspectives and keeping everybody on their toes. I mean, I think that's really interesting. And, and while that could have been abrasive to the internal culture, you know, you might have showed these individuals that there is another way and that they can enjoy coming to work and that you don't have to beat yourself up just to make money. I don't know, I might have been a bit unfair there and, and, <laughs> and left with a few stereotypes. But how did you manage that, that culture? Yeah, we invested a lot of time. Definitely, yeah, there was a, always a fine line between uh, getting the right mix of people, so, you know, skill sets and values and all that sort of thing. You know, there was a, a, a lot of emphasis on the, the way in, making sure that, you know, people were aligned, but, yeah, sometimes, you you know, you needed a particular skill set and somebody wasn't quite aligned. You could indoctrinate them <laughs> or bring them along and they would get into the culture of, uh, of the place and get aligned. Sometimes that didn't happen and sometimes, you know, people did have, have 
you know, either self-select or, you know, move on. But no, it was uh, the whole culture was something that we talked about. We uh, put a lot of investment in that had an awesome people and culture team there and others as well that really brought it to life. Pays off in spades. <laughs> and now you talked a little bit about your personal startup investing. And I'm interested to dig into, you know, the future of Australian productivity and, and innovation. Are there any particular industries that you think have a lot of potential that you're keeping your eye on? Um, particularly sort of focused on in the renewable space. I'm helping a, a team out at Macquarie Uni at the moment um, in relation to renewable hydrogen, for example. Uh, if we really want to you know, shift things in this country, we've got to get off heavy manufacturing. The hydrogen industry is uh, you know, key to that in terms of steel making. So, yeah, I'm really interested in that. There's another one that I'm, I'm working with that's just uh, it's just in the renewable space, but uh, on the solar, the solar side of things. But um, there's, you know, so much space in this country on commercial rooftops. But there's a problem uh, for organisations that, you know, want to create effectively a virtual power plant on, on their roof in connecting to the grid. So there's you know, grid volatility and all this sort of thing. And there's a piece of software to regulate that that'll just make commercial rooftop solar so much more economic. So, yeah, there's just little things like that. Hmm. And I mean, without going into too much detail, because I know it is a whole another issue of discussion, but we do hear this problem with we've got so much solar power on roofs, not enough batteries, and there are, you know, constraints to it feeding back into the power grid system because, you know, power is only meant to, re- it was only designed to go one way along the pipes. I'm not sure if I'm explaining it well. Yeah, yeah. We've yeah. got people generating their own and sending it back to the grid. I mean, are there genuine engineering uh, rest- restrictions and restraints there? Or as you said, they're, they're building software to try and deal with that? As they're building software to try to, to deal with that. That's, that's actually what this uh, piece of software is. Yep. So it's not a physical um, engineering obstacle? No, that's my understanding. It's a, um, this is being resolved with just uh, artificial intelligence and just uh, data. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. All right, Phil, look, I've really loved this conversation today. Um, all issues that are dear to my heart and that I'm really in- always interested in digging deeper. And just to help people go a little bit deeper, do you have any book recommendations? Yeah, I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment called Economics for the Common Good. Bit of a shout out to the ethics team at, the, at Australian Ethical, gave it to me uh, as a parting gift by a French economist called Jean Terrell. I hope I pronounced that correctly. But yeah, the title says it all, but I just think that, um, you know, a lesson out of the current situation is, you know, we were a bit too obsessed with sort of balancing budgets and, you know, economy for the economy's sake uh, and that sort of thing. This book's all about, you know, there's a far more collaboration, I think, required between sort of government and markets to address some of the things in in society. And it particularly um, calls out, you know, some challenges for economists to get their heads around in the future and inequality, the impact of digitisation. And in particular, it goes into climate change as well. So yeah, highly recommend it. Very good. Another one for the list of isolation reads. If, um, If people can tear themselves away from Netflix and read a book, that's great. All right, Luke, we'll leave it there, Phil. Thank you so much for today and let's stay in touch. Well, thanks, John, and congratulations on on your podcasts and your blogs. I I really enjoy them. I appreciate it, Phil. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.